Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Allabest. I recently asked a bunch of women to tell me what they knew about the National Organization for Women, or NOW, now. And I was so thrilled that most women had heard of it. The most common response I got was, wasn't that Gloria Steinem's group? Some people, probably those who had watched the 2020 miniseries Mrs. America, knew that it had actually been founded by Betty Friedan, who was the author of The Feminine Mystique. According to second wave feminism lore, in 1966, a group of women gathered in Friedan's hotel room at a conference, and she wrote the acronym NOW on a paper napkin. But is that origin story true? Is it complete? And what did NOW do then, and what does it do now? To answer these questions, I am so excited to welcome to the podcast the current president of NOW, Christian Nunes. Thanks for being here, Christian. I am so, so honored to have you here. Thank you so much. So excited to be in the podcast to speak with you in conversation. So we usually start our episodes with a bio of our guests. So I'll read your formal introduction first, and then I'll have you introduce yourself a little more informally afterwards, if that sounds good. Christian F. Nunes, MBA, MS, LCSW, became now president in August 2020. She was previously appointed vice president by the board in May 2019. As the second African-American president in the organization's history, the youngest person of color, and the youngest president in more than 40 years, Nunes is leading the organization through an intersectional lens, bringing a diverse coalition of grassroots activists to work against structural sexism and racism. Christian is a former NOW board member and committee chair, as well as a licensed clinical social worker, consultant, and woman minority business owner. She's an active community organizer and public speaker, regularly featured at events such as the March for Black Women, Women's March events, and rallies across the country in support of the Equal Rights Amendment and immigration rights. Along with her activism for mental health, Christian has more than 20 years of experience advocating for children's and women's issues. And I have to say that was the abbreviated version of the bio, so I know there is more that we could go into. But I'd love it if you would kind of start us from the beginning, where you're from, and a little bit about maybe your family of origin, and then what brought you to do the work that you do today. Sure. So I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I grew up there, I would say, half of my life for my mother and my brothers and I relocated to Arizona um, when I was in seventh grade. And it was quite a, a different change. You can mention a culture shock for what I was used to. And we moved out to Air Phoenix, Arizona when I was in seventh grade. And from there, I pretty much grew up most of my life in Phoenix, Arizona. I went to undergrad in NAU, Northern Arizona University. And then I took a year off and worked. And I immediately started in you know, social work. I've always really wanted to help people really be involved in kind of like justice work, community organizing work. So my background has always been social work. I would say, actually, if I think back, when I was young, I wanted to be in a lawyer since I was age nine. <laughs> And so I thought about it, but I think I was more passionate about working directly with people. So I somehow got involved in social work and I took a year off and worked as a domestic violence advocate and victim advocate with victims of crime before and deferred my admission to grad school. And then afterward, I went to grad school and I moved out to New York City and went to Columbia University and got my master of science degree in social work for Columbia University and focused in clinical practice with health, mental health and disabilities. 
So that's kind of really where I shift my career. And I always did that work because I felt like it was important for you to kind of like be a face in, in the community for someone that can relate to you and be able to truly have somebody that can understand kind of perspective from yours. So I did that and also still maintained doing community organizing in the community. I did that on the side. So it's kind of interesting. <laughs> like I worked with my job as a therapist and then I did community organizing like as my own personal commitment to the community. And then I, I got involved in like political organizing at the same time. But when I was in grad school, I first got introduced to now and the CANS chapter. And it just kind of led me to stay in the organization through being involved in community chapters and eventually I just kind of, it wasn't, it was really interesting, Amy. I never thought I'd be president of now, the <laughs> national now. It's just kind of, I don't know, it's interesting how your life unfolds. But I eventually kind of went from like a local chapter to state chapter leadership to national board and then being appointed to vice president. And then all of a sudden becoming, <laughs> I mean, and I really tell you, I, I like I said, my background is mental health and um, health policy. And so I never really saw that in my trajectory of my career, but I knew women's rights and children's rights is always something I really dedicated myself to. So I think it's interesting because it all connects because really, truthfully, I'm still doing advocacy work. I'm still doing women's rights work and children's rights is just on a different side of it. That's so interesting and so inspiring. We did an episode earlier this season on a book called Women in Politics by Mary Chung Hayashi, and she talks about that you know, most people don't envision themselves in those roles. Actually, people who do, you might be not want them in those roles. <laughs> like, right? I mean, it's, you can tell. I mean, certain politicians that you're like, oh yeah, this is about you and your ego more than about community service. But she, her book was so inspiring to me because she's like, listen, it's it's scary to everybody, but you just start with like, what am I passionate about? And then don't be scared to like run for office. Don't be scared to do those bigger things because everybody kind of feels intimidated by a, a little bit, but we need people to do it. And her whole thing was that sometimes women are more intimidated by those roles. And she's just like, just do it. You can do it. And so anytime I hear these stories, it just really inspires me and I think inspires listeners to see someone who's like, I don't know, I didn't envision myself as president, but I just kept working and kept learning. And then here I am. Yeah. And I will tell you, Amy, it's really interesting because I also have an MBA degree, so I have two masters. But I will say that those combination of skills, I think, have helped me tremendously in this role, right? Mm. Because not only do I know firsthand what people go through and work with clients, and I have seen it directly when you're working in the field. Um, I've seen it directly when clients couldn't pay their bills. I've seen it directly when women were going through the system and sitting at a bedside by someone who just was experienced rape. Or someone's child who just, just experienced, you know, um, being child abuse, or someone who just got evicted from their home, or someone who couldn't pay their bills and had to choose childcare. So, so living those experiences and working with clients directly, I know exactly what the disconnects are in services and policy, right? Mm-hmm. And then now being in a position where I'm doing advocacy work, knowing what legislation needs to do. So it's very interesting how. The, the connection of the two things and also having a business degree and knowing how to work, you know, the side of the organization, I think have really suited me very well for leading the organization because I can see things sometimes other people cannot see because I have worked directly with people. So even though I didn't envision it, I think it's interesting how it comes full circle 
And those two, that training, that background, that work has really helped me stay empathetic, but also stay connected, you know, Mm -hmm. to people. Yeah, that's amazing. I can totally see that, like all of your experience and your hard work prepared you so that you were completely qualified. And yeah, the MBA, maybe that's a piece that for me, I do feel intimidated by like administration roles, kind of like being in charge and organizing committees and organizing meetings and stuff. I, mm-hmm. I tend because I'm like a teacher and I'm a connector kind of one-on-one, those things intimidate me. But yeah, I, I'm guessing that like, that's what an MBA is in a lot of ways. I mean, you learn the math side and the finance stuff, but my husband has an MBA. So, but yeah, you learn to be in charge of groups of people. So that's, yeah, it seems like you did cover all your bases and you're totally well, so ready. Teachers are the best business administrators. I know. <laughs> How you manage a classroom. I mean, listen, that's the best business administrators in the world. I'll tell you. <laughs> so that's funny. Uh, well, fabulous. This is so great. And congratulations. And this is just so I'm really, really excited to hear more about now and then about the direction that you've taken it. I wonder if we can start at the beginning and kind of revisit that origin story that I hinted at at the beginning, because I know there has to be so much more to that story. I do happen to know just a tiny bit more because I've studied second wave feminism. So I do know a couple more of the names, but it is, well, you know what? I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm just going to have you tell us the story. So can you tell us a little bit about the founding of Now and some of the other people that were involved in addition to Betty Friedan? Sure. So what people know about now as they hear the story about Betty Friedan, who's famous for the Feminist Mystique, as the main founder of Now, but what they don't know is over 28 co-founders of Now. And she was the main person who was the thought leader, the mind behind founding the organization. But one of the other main women behind founding Now that Betty turns to to really, you know, talk through founding the organization was Reverend Dr. Polly Murray. And a year actually before they had that meeting in the hotel room. And you know, when you hear about the paper napkin, which is true, <laughs> which is very true, she actually reached out and had a conversation with Reverend Dr. Polly Murray about, you know, the concept of this. And it was really started on the idea of the fact that women needed a place that was their own, an organization that really was a place for them that was similar like the NAACP but addressed, you know, the intersections of racism and sexism and address, you know, this discrimination that they're facing. And it kind of wrapped around the idea about the help wanted ads being that they, they were segregated help wanted ads. So there are ads for women and there are ads for men. So this was the kind of to this for them to decide to start this organization. And they were saying there's too much gender discrimination in employment and jobs and they needed this to stop. So... This is kind of what kind of started them onto their journey for this organization, recognizing that women were not treated equal. So they got together, some other co-founders. They were very, it was a very diverse group of co-founders. There were some men co-founders as well that were involved. But it's a very mixed group, a very diverse group, and probably a very intersectional group as well of co-founders, Black women, white women, Black men, women, men, who came together and started this group. And they decided to sit down and come up with what they wanted to see for this organization, what they wanted this organization to stand for. And they kind of started with some principles of, you know, equality, ending discrimination, ending racism, ending gender pay, you know, increasing, you know, equality at all levals. Equal rights to men was a big part of it. 
And they came together and just really formulated out what they really wanted and a statement of purpose was written and drafted. And that's really kind of what formatted the beginning of the National Organization for Women. And from there, I mean, it just kind of blossomed, became, and still to this day is the largest and oldest grassroots organization that's really focused on intersectional grassroots movements from a multi-strategy, multi-systemic approach to the work that we do. I just had something occur to me that I'd never really thought of before. I know that Betty Friedan, for all the good things she did, and she did do so many good things, she had some homophobic prejudice and really resisted what she called the lavender menace, right, of lesbian women in the movement. And knowing that Polly Murray was queer, but that they were friends, do you know anything about tensions within now between straight women and queer women? Um, I would say that what I do know about the feminist movement is there were periods in time where, and I think this even happened then now since it was so, the first and largest organization where they made mistakes, right? They made, made mistakes by not fully allowing women to be authentic in themselves and be recognized in themselves. So this includes Black women, even though Polly Mary was a co-founder, you know, and also Eileen Hernandez was a Black woman. She was a co-founder when she was this first Black president in now, these women still did not feel like they fully were able to feel safe in the organization or able to really feel recognized for the issues that that brought attention for them. And this is very common. We hear this today in a lot of organizations for women of color, not just Black women, you know. And we hear this to that women who are LGBTQIA. We hear this about marginalized community women, disabled women, Asian women, Latin women, and, and Indigenous women. We hear this, right? We hear that Sometimes in organizations, they do not feel safe and they don't feel like the environment is created for them to fully live in their full potential and be recognized. So I think there's always work to be done in this space. And I think that even with now and other organizations and during the feminist movement, there are periods in time when this happened. And now it's no exception to this, you know, and if we're being honest about it, there's so many wonderful things we did, but there's also mistakes that we made. And part of our job is to be able to own our mistakes so that we can improve on them. Yeah, that's great. That's great perspective. I'm thinking, too, of Shirley Chisholm. She was, was she one of the co-founders or was she there at the founding? I know she was involved somehow. Yeah, she wasn't a co-founder, but she was an original member. She was okay. an originating member. So she was there at the very beginning. Do you want to talk about Shirley Chisholm at all for any listeners who haven't heard of her? She's a big deal. Oh, my goodness. Shirley Chisholm is amazing. Another amazing leader, feminist, activist, civil rights shaker, you know, but also another unsung Shiro who, although she was one of the first Black women to run for president, right, civil rights activist stood up, I mean, just demanded to be recognized for her worth at a time when, you know, there was so much racism and sexism happening. But what I love about Shirley Chisholm is she demanded respect, you know, when a lot of times that wasn't given to women and it definitely wasn't given to black women. And she spoke out. She wrote so many bills when she was in Congress and she contributed so much important legislation. And, you know, we're so honored to have her in part of our history. And one of the great things I will say, one of the things I'm very proud of now for is now was, is the organization that endorsed almost every single black woman that started their journey in the congressional race and Congress, women in general. I mean, most women running for office had their first endorsement by now. 
most black women running for office had their first endorsement by now. So that is something I'm very proud of is that we recognized that early on how important it was to be in that space, to stand up and, st- and stand out for a lot of women who needed to be recognized and, and know. Not everyone that we endorse, but also them. And that is something very important. We still try to make sure in this day that we are recognizing and uplifting feminist heroes and heroes that are really doing the work of the feminist agenda. But yeah, she, she's amazing. We hear that famous quote Perth, there's no seat at this table before you, you bring a folding chair. Mm-hmm. That's very famous. We hear it constantly. But it's so important because a lot of times, even today, women have to bring their own chair to the table and representation matters. So she continues to teach us that. And we use those words every day. Mm, wonderful. Well, speaking of the concept that representation matters, that reminds me that I wanted to circle back to Polly Murray because Polly Murray is having a big moment of recognition and representation yeah. soon, right? Can you tell us about that? Yes, this is so amazing. And, you know, thank you to the congressional members who helped create the U.S. Men, Women's Leaders Queen campaign. So the U.S. Men has come out with a quarters campaign where they are releasing quarters after U.S. women who are leaders, they are activists, they are amazing leaders in history. And majority of them are women who normally wouldn't get recognized, you know, for their contributions to this world. One of those women is our amazing co-founder, the Reverend Dr. Polly Murray, for her contributions to legal, to women's rights, to feminist rights, to civil rights. I mean, the contributions she's made, not only domestically, but internationally, are amazing. And so we are so excited to honor her on this coin and have this, this quarter come out. It releases on the 22nd. There will be a, uh, just to kind of name two, two events that will be happening. So if anyone wants to attend a Women's National Museum is, uh, with U.S. Men, it's holding a discussion at the Martin Luther King Library in D.C. to really honor and celebrate her achievements and her legacy we're really having a panel and a celebration on 22nd of February. So that's, you can go to U.S. Men to find out about this event. And it's open to the public and free. So that will be a great event. And that's as well as we are holding an event on the 28th to also give honor to her. But it's really important to really give her her flowers that she didn't receive when she was alive. Yeah. I was going to say it's about time because I, I didn't discover Polly Murray. I'd never heard of her until a few years ago. And there was an article in The Atlantic Maybe it was called The Many Faces of Polly Murray. It was something like that. Mm-hmm. And I was stunned, like jaw dropped, just paragraph after paragraph of things that she accomplished. But she was always just slightly behind the scenes so that the big deal thing that happened was like her brainchild, but she just never really got credit for it. But she right. broke so many barriers. I was like kind of furious that I had never heard of her and that nobody really knew who she was. So hopefully now that she's on money, like she'll ha- literally, she will have more visibility for Americans to know who she was. Yeah. And Amy, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this, but unfortunately, this is very common for women of color, especially Black women, that they are the ones beh- that are doing such amazing work and a lot of times behind the scene, but are often not given credit for their contributions to shifting and changing this world, even changing democracy, helping our state of our democracy, right? Helping set this world. And we don't hear about them. Yeah, we don't civil rights movement. We don't hear about the women's movement. We don't hear about them. The right to vote. We don't hear about them. And people say, well, why didn't I hear about them? 
this is an intentional, this is an intentional act that's happened in our history. And we don't want to claim it. We don't want to own it, but we have to own it now. We have to come back and take accountability for the fact that we intentionally left these women out when we know they were behind such incredible, brilliant work that really helped this world and helped the United States of America. You know, Reverend Dr. Prong Murray wrote the Constitution of Ghana. She helped write the Constitution of Ghana. She was a confidant to Eleanor Roosevelt. They lied on her. Ruth Bader Ginsburg gave her citation and quote in her work. I mean, like, this is just an amazing woman who was cited on so many different things. She was right there with Martin Luther King, Rustin. I mean, so many of these great civil rights activists, but she's been here. But a lot of women, right? And the authorities that were right there that we don't hear about. Really? So I think we have to start really taking the time and start, you know, saying their names, you know, uh, calling them out, recognizing what they've done, making sure when we're speaking about these movements, we also say, and by the way, did you hear about the work of this person as well? Did you hear about how they contributed to this? Did you know, like you just said, did you know? And by you having this podcast and saying, did you know about Reverend Paul? This is partly how you break down patriarchy. Exactly. Hmm. That's the goal. That's the goal, Christian. (laughs) Okay. So are there any other unsung sheroes that you want to tell us about? Sure. One other important person in Alice's history that I really want to give her flowers to her that I think is really important is Loretta Ross. Loretta Ross was hired in the 80s, mid-80s, to come into NOW to really help improve the relations with NOW and women of color and to make sure that we were extending and hearing the voices of women of color and building race relations and racial justice within the organization and other organizations and doing that work. So this is really important, I think, in the time in the 80s to make sure that now was living to its racial justice core issue. So by her coming into the organization and making sure that the voices of women of color were being heard and women who are marginalized are being heard, I think was such a critical time early in the 1985-1990 time period. Many organizations didn't care. So one, I'm proud of now for recognizing the importance of that and bringing her in to saying that we're going to make sure we're recognizing our members and uh, listening to them, but also taking the time to bring someone in and letting her do it her way and her committing to doing this work. So I want to make sure we recognize her as well for being a part of the staff who came in. And Loretta Ross, I don't know if you know her, she's an amazing activist and feminist as well. She also has went on and started other organizations like, you know, Sister Song. She, she's really famous for reproductive rights and justice work. Um, she's fabulous as well. She's really known for calling in, not calling out. But I just want to give her a little bit of flowers as well, because mm-hmm. I think she did amazing things for now as well. There's other women as well, but I just really appreciate the work she's done with reproductive justice, as well as the work she's done in now. Hmm. Wonderful. I'd never heard of her. So thank you. Thanks for bringing her to my attention. And now all of our listeners will benefit from that. So we'll have to go and and look her up after we finish with this episode. Thank you so much. That leads me to another question that I have, I guess, thinking about now in the 80s, because like I said, I guess most people, if they've heard of now, which a lot of people have, which I'm so happy about, they maybe think of like its origins and they think of the second wave of feminism in the 60s and 70s. And then maybe they hear what NOW is doing currently. But I I just realized as you talked about the 80s, 
that there would have been totally different, you know, needs, different initiatives that happened all along the way. Could you talk about some of the initiatives that now was a part of the kind of the work that they've done specifically, and then take us through to the present day and tell us about some of your current work that you're doing there? Sure. So just to give a background, Manalis has six court issues that we work on. It is reproductive rights and justice, equal rights amendment, constitutional equality, it's economic justice, it's LGBTQIA rights, it's racial justice, and the violence against women. And so when we're looking at all these different issues that we're working on, our work is, multi, like I said earlier, is multi-strategy and multi-systemic how we work at things, right? So we don't look at things in single issues. We look at them from how they intersect and how they approach different women and different levels of power impact different women within these systems. So we can't really address, like, and say reproductive justice is only about reproductive freedom. We have to look at how economic injustice impacts women, as well as violence, and how racial justice impacts reproductive justice, all those things come into place. We have continuously worked on those issues throughout our 57, 15, almost 58 years of existence. A lot of work has been done around Title IX. A lot of work has been done about, around um, wage, just, you know, the wage gap in pay. A lot of work has been done around sexual harassment and ending violence against women and VALA. A lot of work has been done around, you know, eliminating employment discrimination, eliminating racial discrimination we see in, in work and in school and education, any type of sex discrimination we're seeing anywhere. We see work fighting against injustices with LGBTQIA, disability, housing, all the different things. The work has crossed over continuously. So anything that's fighting against the equality of women as a whole, <laughs> is where we have done our work. Now has been crucial in many cases, fighting against many cases, many lawsuits, and been involved in most of the major civil rights lawsuits from when we first started in the 60s. So I would say that we really, I mean, I don't think there was a time when now what hasn't been involved or signed on or as a part of any major legislation or even been involved in any lawsuit that I'm mean, making this brief that wasn't about just making a huge shift for change. I don't know if I would say that there's anything really, I guess the biggest ones we know for sure, or, you know, equal rights amendments, huge. We're still fighting for that. We're still involved in that. Title IX is the big one that we're still really superly involved in. VAWA, we were super involved in VAWA. And Tell me what and, that is. I don't know that acronym. Oh, I'm sorry, Violence Against Women. Oh, yeah. Violence Against Women Act. So that was huge. And we continue to have been involved from the act to the reauthorization, we have been instrumental in that happening from the very get-go and fighting from that from the very get-go. We have just literally been involved in every type of sex discrimination, a type of lawsuit, non-disclosure agreements, making sure that you know, meet to movements, in, you know, enough campaigns. We have been involved in all these different things. So if there has been anything where a woman has faced discrimination, of violence, and now has been in the have right been there. <laughs> I guess I could really say. I guess I could go on if you want to know like more big cases. Let me tell you some of our major, major, major ones that are super, super important. I'd love it. So, 
you know, we began with the EEOC public hearings for really encouraging against sex discrimination. Like I said, um, this is regarding help wanted ads. That's where we started um, in our history. That's what I was really talking about. How now started the help wanted ads, but they had the men help wanted and a female help wanted ads. ERA, we have been involved in ERA Equal Rights Amendment um, to get sex equality in the Constitution since the very beginning, since we were founded in 1967. We very much started that, and it has been brought up. And every single thing we've done, I would say every single year, we've had campaigns for that consistently. Can I ask you to dig in a little bit more on that? I live in Utah, which is one of the states that is holding it up that has not passed the ERA. And I know that I so I come from an LDS background and I'm well aware that my church was one of the ones who stopped the ERA that like really contributed to it not passing in the 70s. Uh And a lot of my listenership are Mormon or Mormon adjacent women. And so we've done a whole episode on the ERA, but it was a couple of years ago. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that, like what is holding up the ERA and what people can do about it, I think that would be of a lot of interest to my listeners, particularly. Sure. So when the ERA first started, you know, I mean, it's been 100 years first that we have been fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment being yep. thrown into the Constitution. When we got to the place where they had a place where all we had to do was have 38 states, get the 38 states, and then once you get the 38 states, it's two-year limit, then they would say that we would then be able to get the ERA enshrined into the Constitution. Well, we got to 38 state about a few years ago with Virginia, but even though we've got to 38 state now, <laughs> they're arguing that that's just not enough. So we're at the place now where we're trying to get Congress to take a vote, to remove the time limit, to actually move forward and say that all every requirement's been met, we can take a vote, we can now enshrine the equal rights into the Constitution. There is really no reason, honestly, why it's not happening, besides the fact that some people just don't want women to have full quality under the law. I mean, it's really what it comes down to. I mean, you know, the overall vote says people believe in women having the rights. The polls say it, American people say it, but when it comes down for the vote, you know, our congressional members, you know, they don't vote to have it enshrined. So there's archivists that has a role, there's the Congress has the role, but ultimately Congress is holding it up. There's a voting issue. When you have members of Congress who make a commitment to their, their constituents and they don't vote to allow women to have this right, then what happens is we have things like roll back on Roe versus Wade. You know, we have things like loopholes where women experiencing sexual assaults, uh, the perpetrator can live for certain things because women are not fully protected in, in the equal rights amendment. We have the wage gap. You know, there's certain protections we do not have, which allows certain things to continue to happen in this country. So I think we have to look at that as why we need it. And what would be the reason why we don't have it besides some people just really don't want women to be fully created equal in this country. And all that really takes is a vote. There's a discharge petition happening where they're asking for a vote. They just need so many more signatures to have a vote, but we still have some persons of the Republican Party who are refusing to um, sign, you know, to support the vote for it. And we have some people who are still voting against it. So it's just a matter of, some people just don't want to vote in favor of women having full rights. Ultimately, is what we're seeing. But we're closer than we ever have been, which is great. 
And I think we'll get there this year. We just have to continue to push and continue to encourage people why it's so important that women are protected. Hmm. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm I'm grateful that you pointed out some of the actual differences it would make in legislation because I know the last time I talked to my husband about it, we were kind of like, he, he was saying, well, what are the actual things that would change if we did have an Equal Rights Amendment? And I actually didn't know. And one thing that I said was just, it's almost at this point, symbolic, at least for me, that was the thing that came to my mind is like the fact that it was introduced right after the 19th Amendment, like when women got the vote, that was the very next thing they said is in our next agenda is we need an amendment to the the Constitution. And the fact that it hasn't been passed in 100 years and that the LDS church still does officially oppose it, I think that's why it can't pass in Utah, because the LDS church even recently said we oppose the Equal Rights Amendment. And so a lot of LDS people just feel like they can't go against their church. So symbolically, it's like these religious organizations and our country won't put an amendment to protect you know, women and to have gender equity in the Constitution. It just would mean so much if we passed it because it would be symbolic. And I think that's true, but there are practical reasons why we need it, it sounds like, too. Right. And because ultimately, if you don't have every sex protected under the law, when you have a sex discrimination complaint and it's coming from a woman, how, you know, there's all kinds of loopholes that would for them to be able to argue it if it ever got escalated because we don't have protection. And that's what we see all the time. We we find multiple reasons why things get dropped, multiple reasons why things don't go forward, you know. And also, it's really important that, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment protects everyone. I mean, it's equality under the law for all sexes. So it also helps protect those who are um, LGBTQIA plus and, you know, make sure that everyone's protected so they're not facing discrimination as well. It's making sure that everyone's protected. There's no discrimination. There is no violence. There's things that people are not going to face because of their sex, you know, or their gender identity. And that's all it's asking for is that I can get a job, you know, that if something happened to me, I know that I will be able to be protected and no one can say, well, I don't have to protect you because you're technically not recognized in the Constitution. Yep, that's important. Okay, I know I, I kind of sidetracked you on that deep dive into the ERA. So I, you can pick yeah. back up where you were. Yeah, before. but just so just real quick, just other things, you know, we've been involved in child care, fighting for Medicare for all and health care for all, and just fighting for child care from the very beginning. That is super important to us, making sure children have, you know, child care, affordable child care for children and families, fighting against any type of discriminatory practices that would not pay women. I think economic justice has been huge for us because we still see huge discriminations and the gender wage gap, and it even increases further when it looks at women of color, when disabled women, you know, and then Title IX, you know, with athletics and, and higher education and mission, and those have been important things for us. Pregnancy, Fairness Workers Act, Family Medical Leave Act, those have been huge fights for us as well. And we finally, uh, Pregnancy Workers Fairness Act finally got approved in the last year. That's been a huge fight and that's something that finally received victory for. But we're still fighting for family medical leave back to everyone. You know, why is this all something we still fight for in America? You know, it's, it's yeah. crazy sometimes you think about that. Yeah. Um, and also just thinking about that to equal rights, you know, women are screaming the most with Family Medical Leave Act and lose their jobs in those because 
you know, they're not having that. So it's other things. So, I mean, I could go on, but like I was saying, you know, now has been at the forefront in so many important civil rights cases, constitutional cases from the very beginning of our time. We continue to stay involved. We continue to stay at the front of those things because we believe in equality for all. We believe that nobody should be discriminated against. Nobody's life should be at risk because of their identity, of them being women, children. And we continue to fight for that safety and the full quality for everyone's lives. Well, it sounds to me like you are fighting so many battles, like you're you are changing the world in so many different areas. And that brings the question to my mind of how, how do you do it? Like, where do you get your funding? Where do you get your uh, human hours of like the the insane (laughs) amount of work that that takes of committees on all, it sounds like all different levels, probably from grassroots up to like, you know, more macro level stuff. Who's doing this work and how are they doing it? Well, I would tell you now could not do the work we do without our grassroots activists and chapters. And we are made up of grassroots activists and chapters. We have 38 state chapters and we have over 250 local chapters throughout the states. And without those chapters, our grassroots activists, we would not be able to do this work. They are the body of now. And they really make sure that the message, the vision, the mission of now is getting carried out everywhere throughout the states. They make sure they're representing at the local politics, the state level politics, and the national politics. Our national office focuses on federal legislation, but our states make sure the federal legislation messages are getting out and the people are calling congressional members. But they also make sure that things that are impacting their local people and members and family members are getting put out and that they're pushing things to impact and make their lives better for people around them that they love as well. So nothing would get done with our supporters in the states and our activists and our members in the states who are leading the charge. That's awesome. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with, Christian? This has been so, so interesting and inspiring. Do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share? No, I would just tell anyone, you know, that if you are interested, of course, in being involved in what now is doing, you know, like I said, we have over 30 state chapters, but local chapters are where you really would be super, super involved in, you know, I encourage you to go to our website, www.nownow.org and see if there's a chapter near you where you can connect with or just see what we're doing at the national level and what's happening in our DMV area national level. We do have Virginia chapters, we have Maryland chapters, we have D.C. chapter, but we also have national events that we do see on the federal um, and the, the national level as well. And to see what's happening for us in the events we put on on a, on a virtual level as well for anyone who may be interested for our supporters. Um, and, you know, also we have a podcast we started to make sure we're getting our messages out to call feminism now um, to make sure we're communicating what work we're doing about advocacy and now's mission and vision. And so we hope that too, that's a way of communicating constantly now, all what now is about and that intersectional feminism that we're trying to do and keeping it truthful you know, mm-hmm. and talking about the good, bad and not so good, you know, and, and, but also, you know, making sure that we're connecting with real people who are doing the real work and everybody. So just, I just encourage everyone to stay connected to anyone in any org, they feel connected with as well. So we have a lot of work to do. We need everybody. (laughs) 
Wonderful. Well, I, that is so great. So inspiring. Listeners, t- check it out. Check out the website. Um, it's so great to know about like actual actionable items because sometimes we talk about the problems of the past and the historical foundations and even the way that these phenomena are still manifesting themselves in our lives. And that's like a really, really important first step. But sometimes we're left thinking, well, like, what can we actually do to change our communities? And in some cases, like you pointed out, even change, you know, the Constitution, sometimes laws still need to be changed. So thank you for those action items. Listeners, check it out. And again, what an honor and such a joy to talk to you today, Christian. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. And that wraps up today's episode. Before I go, I want to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our editing and production and Aubrey Iyer for our social media. And as always, I want to thank you listeners for being here. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel, Breaking Down Patriarchy, which features short, super entertaining videos that were created specifically to be able to share with friends and family members. Huge thanks to Ralph Blair and Aubrey Iyer for their genius work on that series. And if you want to show your appreciation for this excellent ad-free content, the most helpful thing you can do is to forward this episode to your friends and family and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews really do help people find the podcast, and the more people listen, the greater the impact of this grassroots movement to break down the patriarchal structures in our institutions and our relationships and build egalitarian structures in their place. Thanks again for joining me, and make sure to tune in next time for another fascinating episode on Breaking Down Patriarchy.